Foxes and Vowel is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron, host of the Foxes and Fowl podcast. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, who's been many things, as you'll hear, but she's currently the executive director of First United, one of the most important ministries on the downtown east side in Vancouver. Carmen was generous with both her time and her story, and I loved having this conversation. We cover an awful lot, so stick around after for a few things that I've taken away from this time. Until then, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Carmen. Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. I'm so pleased that you've uh, you've taken some time to be with us today. I'm, I'm really glad you're here. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Reverend Aaron. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see your face. I wish we could do this in person, but... Uh, um, Thank God for this technology that allows us to connect anyways. Um, let's jump right into to the conversation. One of the things we're really concerned about in this podcast is the idea of vocation or calling or just kind of what we're meant to do with ourselves and how we discern what that looks like. Um, and I've, I'd love to hear you reflect a bit on that idea through your own journey. And also because I, I always uh, I'm always kind of interested in folks who do a bunch of different kinds of things, but sort of hold them <laughs> coherently. You know, you're, you're an ordained minister. Uh, you, you're currently, I just learned, uh, the, the, the chair of the National Indigenous Candidacy, Candidacy Board. Yeah. You're still doing that work. That's good. For the United Church of Canada, you're an academic, you're a writer, you've been a campus minister at one point in your life, and now you're the executive director of First United which is one of the most important uh, ministries serving the downtown east side here in Vancouver. How, how does that all fit together for you? I don't know. I guess I just ended up in the right place at the right time. Um, I'm also on the HR committee of the North Shore Girls Soccer Club. It's very important. <laughs> um, but I'm not a soccer mom. I'll say that. Um, so... It's interesting because I've been talking with my mom a lot about my journey. Uh, my current role is a really big role and as has been really stressful at different points over the last four years. And um, so obviously my mother being my mother, she's like, I'm worried about you. And I don't like, I hate it that you work there and I love it that you work there. And um, but we've been talking about my faith journey too over the last year, especially since last Christmas. And mm. Um, when we moved from Alert Bay, where I was born, to Oak Bay when I was 17 months old, um, it was me as like a preschooler that asked if we could go to that big red church on the corner. Mm. I sort of brought my parents back to church in um, my preschool years, and then we moved back to Alert Bay for a while, and in grade six, I moved back to Victoria. And I went back to Oak Bay United, um, did CGIT, was really involved with the youth group there. 
uh, became involved in presbytery and then youth at conference. And I was nominated to be a commissioner to general council in 1992 in Fredericton. And it was really interesting because this was big um, membership debate. Uh, you know, it used to say in the manual, I don't think it does anymore, that if you are a full member of the church, you can have voting privileges in the upper courts of the church. But if you're a member, but not a full member, then you can't. And so I'd never been confirmed. And, so, you know, the nominations committee made a big deal about some other guy that had been nominated as an adult to go as a commissioner. And he also had was not a full member. And I was like, well, neither am I. And, and so I was baptized or confirmed. Well, yeah, baptized but, and confirmed. And confirmed, yeah. Yeah, so that you've made like a, a teenager or an adult profession of faith in addition to your baptism. Mm -hmm. So baptism allows you to come to the table. Um, although I think uh, many congregations are like the U Hill where, uh, you know, the journey to the font and the journey to the table can happen in uh, reverse order sometimes, but we mm -hmm. hope that they both come together at some point in your life. Um, but at that time, it was kind of a big deal that you had to have made this like conscious, like, you know, that you had to have the cognitive capacity to choose discipleship as mm -hmm. part of your participation in the courts of the church. And so I went as a, a youth delegate to youth forum rather than as a voting commissioner, but um, was really shaped and formed in my experience at the church. And also, um, you know, I came from both sides of my family um, have like histories of really deep trauma uh, my mom is Indigenous. She's, uh, we're Heltzuk from the Heltzuk First Nation in the central coast of BC. And like many Indigenous families are no strangers to poverty and addiction and, and abuse and abandonment and uh, dispossession and all of those things that face many Indigenous Canadians. And uh, my dad is third generation British settler. Uh, his grandfather was a homesteader that used to walk from Port McNeil to Victoria twice a year to get um, coffee and sugar and tea and flour. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> like machete, like like blazing a trail every year because there wasn't one yet. Um, and my grandfather grew up like um, in his early years speaking Kwakwala and Chinook and was raised by a single mother on a homestead in the mouth of the Nimkish River Valley. And so but it grew up very uh, closely with the Namgis especially. And um, but like those are like that was a hard life too, and there's lots of trauma and loss in in that history of the early settlers of British Columbia, and so um, like a lot of people in my family, I also really struggled. I struggled with um, I struggled with university. Neither of my parents graduated from high school, and um, there's a lot of history of alcoholism and addiction and. Uh, mental health struggles in my family and I was not any stranger to that and so by the time I went away to university I really kind of fell into um, a life set aside from the church um, mm -hmm. and feeling I guess like alone and also doing all of the normal partying things that people do in university but for me um, I think I had a lot of blind spots about how bad my alcoholism was because Nick, now I'll run into people or reconnect with people that I went to university with in Texas. And they're like, oh my God, you're still alive. Um, <laughs> there's nothing like a 20 year hindsight of like, oh, it was that bad. Um, and so I really, I mean, but I got sober young, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I lost my older brother to uh, mental illness and addiction 
um, it'll be 20 year, 21 years ago in April next year. Wow. And um, last week I celebrated 20 years of sobriety. And Congratulations. It's amazing. Yeah. And so a big part of my story was in the meantime, like I thought like I, I have the most random vocational history. I went to university to do a bachelor of flute performance and orchestral studies at the University of North Texas. I did that for two years. I did not want to be a concert musician and I didn't want to teach music. So I was like, well, I, what I really want to do is fight for indigenous land claims. So I transferred to UVic. I chose history arbitrarily as a pre-law degree, hated it, hated writing, hmm. um, got burnt out on school, got kicked out of school like two or three times at UVic, um, was more scared of the family than I was of the Senate of the university. So I fought my way back in all three times. <laughs> and um, and by the time I was done my undergrad, I was just like burnt out. Um, and in the meantime, a whole bunch of indigenous people I knew had been, um, had faced problems with the CRA because the Indian Act and the Tax Act are in conflict with each other because the Indian Act protects indigenous people from paying taxes, full stop. Right. And for the most part, um, I think Indigenous Canadians sort of flew under the radar because there's so many, like such a huge percentage of Indigenous Canadians who were like living under the poverty line and wouldn't have owed any taxes anyway if they were even working. And so um, then as Indigenous people started to become successful business leaders or had set up their businesses in a way that they were taking advantage of that tax shelter, the CRA was like, whoa, that's not okay. And so what a lot of Canadians don't know is that uh, the Canadian Tax Act is the only act of government that is not based on common law, it's based on the French code law system. And so unlike the common law system where you're guilty until proven innocent in the code law, you're, in a, you're no, vice versa. Common law, you're innocent until proven guilty and code law, you're guilty until proven innocent. And so I watched oh. a whole bunch of people in my circles get these massive tax bills. And I'm talking like, you know, 500, 750,000, $2 million tax bills. Whoa. And there was nobody that understood indigenous tax law um, in the way that they were being forced to defend themselves. And I thought, well, instead of doing indigenous constitutional law, I'll do indigenous tax law. Also, I should not go to law school right now. So I called a professor at UVic and said, I really wanna do tax law, but I can't, I'm burnt out on school. I also have um, some less than impressive transcripts. I have a lot of A's, but I have a lot of F's. And what can I do in the meantime um, that'll be in service of a law school application later? And he said, it's probably more work than law school, but you'll learn everything you could possibly wanna know about tax. Um, and at least you get paid for it. And if you never go to law school, you have another designation. So he recommended I go into the chartered accounting program. Okay. And so I did, and I managed to get a job with um, KPMG in their Aboriginal Services Group in Vancouver in the Lower Mainland. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, and that was sort of coming to the end of my, my drinking years. And um, for anybody who's watching who has worked in public practice in accounting, that is not a good place to work if you are an alcoholic because there's a lot of drinking, or at least there, there used to be in the, in the late 1990s. And um, I think WorkSafe is forced employers to be more <laughs> conscious of like what they're serving their people and when and how much, but um, I got sober while I was at KPMG and, um, and I had been trying to get sober since I was 18. And wow. by the time I was 25 and I had lost my older brother, 
um, I, yeah, I just, I had this moment where I'd gone out in a big bender for a work party on like a Thursday night, um, had a big fight with my family about, I don't even know if I'm an alcoholic, but you know, if I am so what, and I keep trying to hide the fact that I drink from you and I'm just not going to do that anymore. And all I can promise is I'm going to be honest. Hmm. That's all I can give you right now. I can't promise I'm going to stay sober. I can't promise anything that I'm tired of lying to you. And because my parents were like 12 years sober at the time. And um, they, yeah, so they were like 13 years sober when I got, when I got sober. Um, and I went to a friend's house on a Sunday night and had a half a glass of wine. And I was, no, it was a Saturday night, had a half a glass of wine. And I was done. No, it was a Monday night. Had a half glass of wine and I was done. And the following Sunday, I decided I was going to get up and go to church. And I mm. was living in Tawasin at the time. I went to Ladner United Church. Sharon Moore Kirk, Cook, who's passed away a couple of years ago, she was the interim minister, along with Alan Reynolds, our dear friend, who we also just mm. lost. And Doug Graves, who's also predeceased them both. Um, we're in team ministry to there as interims. And um, it was the first Sunday of Advent, and Sharon was preaching about the fact that the promise of Christmas hadn't come yet, but we knew that that promise was on the horizon and that there was the possibility of change coming in the Christ event and that we were waiting with this hopeful anticipation and in the not knowing of exactly what would change, but something had to give. And I was like, ball my eyes out. I was like, oh my God. And my whole body relaxed and was like, oh, good, you can be a minister now. And I was like, and at, the, at that point, I had not been to church in like eight years. Jesus is weird, hey? <laughs> Jesus is so weird. Jesus is a weirdo. Um, so I went into Sharon's office after the service and I was like, you don't know me. I haven't been to church in eight years, but this thing just happened. And she was like, well, maybe we should keep talking about it. And I was like, no, like, you don't understand. I have not been to church in eight years. I was like, she goes, well, you were you raised in the church? I said, yeah, I'm a member of the United Church. I was, I was very, she said, have you ever felt a call to ministry before? I said, yeah, and like high school, maybe. I kind of thought that I'd do my music degree. And then if I ended up being a, a church musician or like a minister who had a music degree, like that maybe that would be an, a place that I would go. And she's like, well, in my experience, sometimes that leading us away from the church is us avoiding that call. And so who knows, like, maybe let's just come back next week and keep talking. Mm. And um, I cried every Sunday between the first Sunday of Advent and Easter, as I sat in the <laughs> pews. And when Lent started in- for, um, for the listeners is like five months, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I went through this, um, Lenten study with Sharon and Alan and Doug and um, so grateful for the beautiful service you did for him. Um, so yeah, I, um, I did an adult profession of faith at Easter the following year and, um, and then um, I lost my job at KPMG. I got fired. It took me a long time to realize. I, I think I found out like three years ago that I got fired 19 years ago. <laughs> um, I thought I'd get laid off, <laughs> but um, yeah, I got fired. Um, 
which is, you know, the importance of like strong relationships between managers and their, and their employees. I, my manager thought that I had lied to him and I hadn't. Um, and funnily enough, it was about my drinking. He thought I was late for work to a really important thing in Lillooet and I got lost um, trying to get there. And he thought that I just didn't show up to work because I was hungover, mm. but I was already like six months sober then. Um, anyway, when I, when I got let go at KPMG, they said, you know, we've, we usually tell people that you left your job to pursue other opportunities. Is there something you'd rather we said? And I said, yeah, you can tell everybody I left to go to seminary. He was like, what? <laughs> I was like, well, I had like BST bookmarked on my, on my web browser and um, I was going to finish my designation first, but I think you just made that decision for me. So, um, and then I, I had been doing a whole bunch of work and growth work around like my sobriety and just personal growth and sort of tied in with the church, but also other stuff. And I was like, you know, yeah, I think I feel called to ministry of word sacrament and pastoral care, but I don't know that that will be in a congregation. Like I also feel called to teach. Mm -hmm. And I knew I didn't like teaching music. And um, at that time, Vancouver School of Theology had this weird like prerequisite week where the first week after Labor Day, if you were going into any degree program, you had to attend orientation week. It was like a prerequisite for all other classes. And I lost my job on September 12th <laughs> at like the end of this first week of school. And I was like, well, I can't, I can't start at VST until next year. So I ended up going to teach English in Japan for like a year and a half to make sure I like teaching because I didn't see the point in possibly pursuing postgraduate studies in theology if I didn't like teaching. And um, and then I went to VST and then I did candidate supply in Saskatchewan. And then um, I was ordained to further study. I did a second master's degree, like a master of theology at the Vancouver School of Theology where I worked as the chaplain uh, for the United Church at U-Hill um, yeah. where you are currently called. and. Um, then I got accepted to my PhD in interdisciplinary studies at, uh, the Graduate Theological Union in partnership with UC Berkeley. And, uh, so moved to Berkeley in like August of 2008 and, um, really intended to pursue becoming a professor of constructive theology or a, mm. a professor of like indigenous theology somewhere, although that position doesn't really exist anywhere, but, um, and then watched all, you know, like the 2008 housing crisis happened in the US, the economy kind of fell apart globally. And I watched all of these people I knew finishing their PhDs, like really brilliant, amazing, creative people that were, you know, years ahead of me in their programs graduate. and. At the time, there was over 400 applications for every tenure track job in theology across North America. Wow. And um, I also met my partner in Berkeley and um, I had not planned to get married or have kids. And I had kids and got married <laughs> and um, was like, I can't, I, I made a big, investment in terms of like student loans and stuff to go to Berkeley as opposed to going to university in Canada. And so I was like, I can't afford to not be employed and I have to have a plan B. And so I started working um, for nonprofits while I was doing my PhD instead of working for the church. And I built up a different skill set around nonprofit administration 
um, becoming the director of operations at the Alliance for Climate Education, then moved home um, almost to Canada. I was living in Ferndale, Washington for four years, uh, took a job as director of so operations close. at the <laughs> at Ecojustice Canada Society, which was in Gastown, Vancouver. And, um, and then was sort of feeling set, set apart from the church again. And I, and I really found like when I was in, um, I don't think that people necessarily think that um, the United Church has a, I mean, we sort of define ourselves as being like, not like other churches, I guess, but also there's so much variety that we don't think of the United Church as having a particular culture, but it does. Mm -hmm. I never found a worship home in California or in Washington. Okay. A little bit at the United Church in Ferndale, but I really missed uh, the United Church of Canada. And um, I remember saying to the executive secretary of conference at some point, you know, like I went and did my PhD in theology and in service of the church, really. And like, now, now what? He's like, well, if you want to work for the church, come back and work for the church. Like you have to actually apply for a job. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, <laughs> And I think that's one of the interesting things about being human, right? It's just like, oh, why is the world against me? And like, we don't take those steps that we need to, to like actually move our own lives forward sometimes when we're not bringing our best and most centered selves to the work. And I think that right. that's one of the blessings of, um, of grounding ourselves in faith is that like, we are in a practice of like mindfulness and self-reflection that actually allows mm. us to look at the fact like it's not actually the world against us all the time. And for sure, there are systems of oppression and like barriers to people flourishing. And I'm not denying yes. that, but like also um, one of my favorite management coaches says, everybody's responsible for their own experience at work. Mm. Right. And that whether that's like not being a victim or not martyring yourself or not overworking or whatever, like speaking up and saying, this is too much. Like we're all, we all have some agency in um, how we handle and or sidestep or remove ourselves from the situations life puts us in. And, mm. um, and that was a real confrontation to me. And so at the time I was serving the national church on the theology interchurch interfaith committee and Brian Thorpe, who's a retired minister here in British Columbia, he was also on that committee with me. And we were doing a check-in just at the start of this meeting in Toronto. And he, I went first and I said, you know, I've been just really struggling about like what I want to do next and feeling set up aside from the church and had this like confronting moment with Doug Goodwin. And then I was like, oh, well, what would that look like? And how, like, what, what would I do if I was going to come back and work for the church? And then we got around the circle to Brian's turn and he said, I chair the board at First United and our brand spanking new executive director that we hired a year and a half ago just resigned with two weeks notice and we have no idea what we're going to do. Wow. So I went for coffee with Brian and I said, well, what do you think if I apply for that job? And uh, the rest is history, four years of history. <laughs> um, almost to the month actually. And um, so it's this weird situation where you know, like I, a big part of my role at EcoJustice was like leasing and building out offices. And we had the potential for this big redevelopment at first. And I was like, well, I know how to read architectural drawings and knowing how to future proof, like what kind of cabling goes into the walls <laughs> and um, having been an accountant and not, yeah. yeah, like having, having worked in public accounting and like also being a theologian, my parents were married at First United. 
Like it just was, it really was like coming to the perfect place at the perfect time. And my mom really raised me. um, She's a big liberationist at heart. um, And she really raised me to, to believe that unless we're doing ministry with integrity in the downtown east side of Vancouver, then the United Church is not really doing ministry with integrity anywhere because it is the end state Mm -hmm. of all of the failed systems in our society. And Mm -hmm. if love was enough, it wouldn't exist, right? Because every person in the downtown east side is loved by somebody. Wow, that's powerful. And and so I felt a call and I applied and here I am. That's amazing, Carmen. You are uh, even more interesting than I had any idea. I, I, I need to know, do you still play the flute? No, I mean, I have my flute, but I just, I don't make time to do it. Every once in a while, I'll take it out and I'll play it. My kids are like, what? (laughs) (laughs) You can do that? How can you do that? Just, just one of mom's tricks. That's good. Yeah. And I I love that. I love, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, that all of these kind of disparate parts really did come to a spot where they, they fit together. I think that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I hope it's encouraging for anybody who maybe doesn't know exactly what they're going to do with whatever they're doing at this point. You know, I, I, uh, similarly, I mean, I, I just had no intention of going to seminary when I was in university, but it, you know, yeah. unlock some of the things that I did. Well, I mean, I guess Providence or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe not just dumb the luck, spirit, but, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and so I hope that's encouraging uh, for folks. And it's certainly encouraging to me. I, 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 I loved hearing about that. That's, that's marvelous. Well, and it's never a straight path. And it was certainly like, I don't know. But the other thing my mom had said the other day was she said, you know, I'm so, she said, I think First United is so lucky to have you because to have like all of these different background experiences and like life experiences and the lived experience of living, mm-hmm. um, and struggling with your own alcoholism and addiction um, on top of all the professional capacity that you have to run this space right now and leading it out of sort of like, I mean, the ministry was kind of in decline and it had been for a while. Um, They're so lucky to have you. And, you know, every single experience you've had in your life has equipped you in some way to handle a situation that First United has thrown at you. And I just think and go, oh, that's what God was doing. Yeah. But oh my goodness, was it painful watching you get there? <laughs> <laughs> and it and it's I mean that's I mean I I don't I I love a good one liner. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't particularly like that one, but I think that um the gift that my faith has given me has been um to know that I'm human and pain and struggle is a part of the human experience and I'm no better or no worse than anybody else. Mm. I love what Brene Brown says that everybody has a story that'll break your heart. And if you really listen, everybody has a story that'll bring you to your knees. And that is so true. And, um, And I think again, like being part of a faith community, whether it's within the church or like a group of friends that are, you know, there's and my brother's like this like his his community of faith is best friends that he's had since primary school um that are like his people and that's who he draws on for strength and reflection and discernment and having that community of witnesses to your life and to like humanity around you is a big part of 
like how we can draw on each other to make it through the tough times because none of us like I remember dealing with my own perfectionism at work my boss saying like every single like you cannot go through your work life without making mistakes every mm. single person makes mistakes at their job like what makes you think that you could make it through life without making mistakes at work yeah it was just like this light bulb went on and I and I um I think that like life is messy and we don't know where we're going to end up and it's okay to be uncertain or to try new things or say like this isn't working I'm going to change my mind it's another mm. another Brene Brown one-liner that I love is this is no longer productive <laughs> I need to reschedule <laughs> but I feel like we can do that with our work lives too like this is no longer productive I'm going to try something else sure yeah and I, I you know as you were talking I was thinking as well in the church we have this it's not just our, our peers, but we had, I was, you know, this, this communion of saints that gathered around you when you said you walked into church after eight years and, you know, we yeah. of sobriety and said, I think I'm being called into ministry and they didn't run you out of town <laughs> or try yeah, to discourage you or talk you out of it, but they, they took you on. And, and, and it wasn't just the paid accountable ministers in the pastoral charge either. Right. It was like um, Cliff and Betty McMurtry, Joan McMurtry's parents, Mm. Um, when I lost my job, they would hug me at church and I'd go home and there'd be a $20 bill in my pocket Aww. that they'd snuck in there when they knew that I was unemployed. And um, Linda McLaren, who's up in the north part of the province now, but she was the executive director at Delta Assist um, home, su home Support Society and hired me as like a contract scheduler for her bargaining unit and, you know, got me a job. And that was long before she even went through her own discernment process for ministry. And um yeah just so many so many people um that hired me for odd jobs or you know celebrated the fact that I was in this place of deep struggle and like trying to um turn my life around and like really recommitting to my faith roots in the church and um you know I I shouldn't act like I brought my parents to the church as a preschooler. I didn't like I'm third generation at a church on both sides of my family, which is about as far back as you can go in a 90 year old church. But <laughs> um, yeah, it really is. Like, I mean, the church really is a communion of saints of yeah. all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds and roles. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I am so I'm delighted that uh, you're a witness to some of the best of it. I mean, we've made our mistakes too, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, at, at, you know, when we're doing things well, we do things like, like you've shared. So I'm really yeah. grateful for that. Thank you. I had lots of goosebumps while you were talking. It's wonderful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, about your current work. Um, you know, lots of people, I think, I think lots of people in Vancouver, uh, we sort of vaguely know about the downtown East side, but you never yeah. have to go there unless you have to go there. And it's, in the grand scheme yeah. of things, I mean, it occupies this kind of huge space in our collective conscience, but it's like a few yeah. blocks of, and then, you know, like on either side, it's places you can't afford to live. Uh, anybody yeah. can, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about um, what FIRST is doing um, and, and, you know, about the downtown east side, things you've learned over the course of your, your four years. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because we've been preparing for um, tearing down our building and building a new purpose-built 
church facility with seven floors of housing on top, all non-market wow. housing, which in Vancouver is really unique and cool. And um, as part of that preparing to look forward, we're also preparing statements for like the Heritage Commission. So weird thing, our building was built in 1965. It's, um, it was the second building built on that lot. And, um, but the ministry is considered a heritage, like an intangible heritage cultural asset of the city. Huh. Um, and so I've been looking back at the past a lot too. And First United was the congregations of First Congregationalist, Central Methodist, and First Presbyterian came together during church union in 1925, and they and they started worshiping at uh, our current site, which was First Presbyterian. And but prior to church union, between the periods of 1915 and 1918, all three of those founding congregations had hired social workers wow. to start working um, in active. Uh, social service, like providing active social service for the community as it um, deepened in poverty and uh, and specifically racialized poverty around them. Mm. Um, people in Vancouver may have heard of the Hogan's Alley Lands uh, Land Trust um, and Hogan's Alley Society that are really trying to like revive the history of the Black renter mm -hmm. uh, historic community, um, also in Strathcona in in our neighborhood and. Um, but at that time, um, Eastern European and Southern European uh, migrant communities were also uh, not considered to be like fully white or were like were racialized mm -hmm. ethnically. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, one thing I learned working in the downtown east side is that like, like a Chinese smorgasbord, like smorgasbord is a Swedish word. And um, that, <laughs> that, that idea came from the downtown east side of Vancouver. Because it was the it was the neighborliness of the like the racialized Swedish poor migrants and the Chinese and, and Chinatown, huh. and like putting together this idea of like more efficient service of food for the work camps um, by having a Swedish smorgasbord, but like with Chinese food. So, huh. um, like we've been doing these really interesting um, and innovative responses to the community that has faced various challenges over the last hundred and thirty five years, like almost since we started. And um, right now that looks like addressing homelessness. So we still have our emergency homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're planning to add housing. We first United started a housing society. It's not as well known um, in 1981. So we have three buildings of social housing um, in two buildings in the downtown side and one in Mount Pleasant at uh, Broadway and Brunswick. And um, we have not, we've not become experts in operating housing over the last 40 years. <laughs> and so, um, and we recognize that affordable housing is the number one need in Vancouver, but specifically really the number one need in the downtown east side. And so um, we made the decision not to operate any more housing, but to enable housing through the asset that we have in our land and the church. And so we're building seven floors of housing on top of um a purpose-built sort of multi-purpose space that will be church and social service center and drop-in and computer lab and day sleeping space and out your roof deck courtyard and wow. um and also like knowing that 60 years from now we have no idea what our neighborhood will look like and so if we wanted to become a congregation again where worship could happen on a sunday morning that we have the flexibility for that to happen 
Mm. um happen still and that the building will be beautiful and um so that's our really big thing right now um responding to covid is the other thing it's heartbreaking to see the way that um the whole like all of the agencies collectively have not been able to completely uh develop operational plans that allow um our social services to respond safely to COVID. And so um, it was in the news a couple of weeks ago that I think like UGM said they've gone down like 80% in their shelter capacity. Mm -hmm. um, we're down between 75 to 75 to 50% capacity, depending on the night. Because um, we've all chosen physical distancing over full occupancy. And and the community chooses that too. You know, they're like, if I have the chance to sleep rough outside away from everybody else or sleep in a bunk bed, like right. I don't want to get COVID. And so it's really thrown the downtown side into disarray. Um, so we're trying to figure out a way to um, respond to the pandemic. Um, but we're still, you know, we have a help desk where people can access uh, clean underwear, clean socks, first aid supplies, toiletries, um, information, pet food, uh, we're still doing our community lunches and breakfasts um, five days a week. And we've installed like takeout windows in the front of the church. Oh, cool. um, not everybody will have been inside First United, but like our co our shelter and our drop-in were basically like co-located with each other. So we can't safely operate a drop-in while we have the shelter open during the pandemic. So um, people are missing a place to like just hang out and be that's safe. Um, they don't have access to public showers or to public telephones anymore. Um, but because of our redevelopment, we are also being able to design all of our temporary, like we're moving to five or six different locations in the next six months. Okay. So we're also able to plan that in a way where we can maximize um, safety from, for the pandemic too. So that's kind of a nice blessing because it's challenging where we are. Wow. I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And I, I, I mean, you mentioned, you know, this is such a young city, all things considered. So yeah, and I think for for me as someone who's new to the city, I mean, I've I only started to hear about the downtown east side when there was an opioid crisis, which yeah, I'm sure extends much further than most of us are kind of aware of. But it's just it's fascinating to me that in you know 1915 churches were hiring social workers, uh, yeah. like to respond to the the immediate and contextual needs of <laughs> that community um, mm -hmm. how can we you know, you know so you and I work in kind of different worlds <laughs> we're connected <laughs> my, my, my church is, um, I'm pleased that we we contribute to some of the ministry of, of first United and that's great but at the same time you know it's it, we're pretty far removed um, what how, how can we engage what, what can we do What's the most hard, I mean, like, well, under normal circumstances? Let's pretend COVID yeah. is not a thing right now. I mean, you, you, guys are great, you guys are great supporters. So um, I will give you a huge shout out at U Hill because you were the first congregation to um, really jump in and participate in a new fundraising initiative we did, which was last night, which was our shelter gala. Um, so, I mean, I think we're still in a period of figuring out like what does support for First United look like besides cash, right? Like sure. obviously it's gonna always cost us a minimum of $4 million a year to run the organization at its current capacity and size and programs. And um, 
it's interesting because I have people say like, oh, you know, like you're, you're always asking for money and like, you shouldn't always just be asking for money. It's like, well, actually, and <laughs> we're charity and that's how we make money. And that was a decision of the church to create this charity. And they did so with the pledge of support from the wider church. And so we have to like, it's actually my fiduciary responsibility as the executive director to ask you for money. You don't have to say yes, but I have to ask. As, um, your, mom, as your mom said, right? Love doesn't, love isn't enough. <laughs> Yeah. Love doesn't keep it also, I think also like we have an opportunity, like there's so many social disruptions that are happening right now around like Black Lives Matter, around missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, around the opioid crisis, around poverty reduction. And I think now is a good time also like in every segment of the church and in every community of faith to be having conversations around mission and around um like power and, um, you know, I think a lot of church mission, aside from the fact that it's been sort of dovetailed with colonialism um, through most like recent history over the last six or 700 years, yep. um, I side with some scholars who say that the start of colonialism was the conquest of um, Islamic Spain, mm. not the conquest of the Americas, because uh, that's how they knew it worked. Mm. Um, but um, that, you know, like there's only so many sandwiches you can hand out. You're about to get vo video bombed by my kids in just a second. Um, <laughs> but to like really look at like, what does charity look like where it's not just a pat on the back of the person <laughs> of the, of the person who's giving the charity and, and what is our call as a church to um, talk about social justice and to look at poverty reduction as like a systemic policy change that needs to happen in the government and like drug policy reform and the decriminalization movement and like what could change if we stop talking about the rise in crime needing to be uh, met with a rise in police budgets but instead like talking about the fact that a rise in crime usually become becomes a problem because of a rise in poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm still thinking through um, with our social justice partnership circles and our social justice committee of the board, like how do we engage the, the church in those conversations? And not to say that we don't keep meeting the immediate needs of people, but to use, I mean, sometimes it gets attributed to a Buddhist proverb. Sometimes it gets attributed to Desmond Tutu. And people have said it a lot of times, but like at a certain point we have to like get out of the river and stop pulling the bodies out of the river and go upstream and find out where those bodies are coming from. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's what we're called to do as a church. Mm -hmm. um, we have a long history of um, like strong public advocacy and civic engagement and people using the church as a mechanism to address society's social justice issues. And, um, and that's where we need support. <laughs> this is Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel. <laughs> well, I, I want to, you've given me so much of your time and I'm so grateful. Uh, <laughs> you, you are a gift. I'm really glad that God has done the work in you that God has done and that I thank you for uh, introducing me to your kids. Uh, Lovely children. Yeah. This is Esperanza. She's a kid too. Hi. <laughs> and I just want to say, I just want to say thank you. I know you've got a ton on your plate these days and um, we will we'll be praying for 
all the work of FIRST and uh, I'm, I'm glad that we'll get to continue to support that work as well. So thank you so much. Uh, also the money. Also money. <laughs> also yeah, money. also money. And thank you. And yeah, huge thank you to you, Hill. Um, you'll be getting an update from us, but the Shelter Gala was a really special event and we're so grateful for your support. And I don't Wonderful. have kids like hanging all over me. <laughs> <laughs> Check out firstunited.ca, right? Firstunited.ca for all that work. And well, again, thank you, Carmen. You're wonderful. Thanks, Aaron. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carmen as much as I did. Here's a few things I'm taking away from it. First, the reminder that Jesus is weird. <laughs> Jesus has this habit of calling unexpected people and hanging out in all the wrong places. And praise God for it. It's good news. Second, Carmen's story reminds us that everything you have done and everything you will do might be something that God is going to use for the thing you're called to. God has a reputation for working when things don't seem all that promising. Third, sometimes we just need to take the next step. Fourth, I love this quote from Brené Brown that everybody has a story that will break your heart, and if you listen, everyone has a story that will drop you to your knees. And finally, if you're a person of faith, how does that faith how do our faith communities respond to the real and pressing questions and challenges of our time and place? The gospel is for the sake of the world. Gospel people need to be too. Thanks again for hanging out. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, University Hill Congregation and the Pacific Mountain Region of the United Church of Canada for making this happen. Thanks to Davis Miller for the soundtrack. Check them out wherever you get your music. Until next time grace and peace.